Okay, so let's, um, let's begin. I want to do a small recap, especially if somebody's coming for the first time, but also the, what we're going to be doing today um, is going to be gra um, it's, it's grounded and rooted in the things that we've done before, you see. We are, it's almost like we have to set the foundation and now we want to build on top of that foundation. So I want to do a quick recap of what we did um, in the foundation. When we want to start talking about the gospel, we said, look, the gospel is news. And if it's news, it's a statement. But statements only find their true meaning in stories. And so the first thing we looked at was the gospel story. Gospel story. We went from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. And we said that the gospel story goes in four parts, four big acts, if you like. Creation, fall, new, uh, redemption, and new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And that redemption part, you can have just before redemption itself, a little bit, you know, if you want subcategories, just before redemption, you have Israel. Just after redemption, you have church. But Israel, redemption, church is within the bigger um, classification of redemption. So creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And that the gospel story from Adam and Eve, Abraham, David, uh, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus Christ, out, up unto new creation, that is the story within which we find the gospel. But that the gospel itself is a statement, and statements have, um, um, they have uh, subjects and objects. Now, Jesus Christ is the main subject of the gospel. And so whenever you are defining the gospel, it's really about Jesus Christ. And so the definition that we had for the gospel in trying to define it through Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, but also the work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. And so the gospel is this. It says five things about the work of Jesus Christ. Okay? So the gospel is this. The good news that the incarnate one, crucified Savior to Jesus the Messiah, is the risen or resurrected three, Lord and impending judge five of the world. The gospel is the good news that the incarnate, crucified Savior, Jesus the Messiah, is the risen or resurrected Lord an impending judge of the world. Of course, I can't go into um, what all of that means. I would refer you to the very first teaching of this. Now, after that, we said, now, that's the, that's the statement, but the statement has objects. And from a positive standpoint, who, uh, who um, are the objects of the gospel? Who does it benefit? Well, it, it depends on those who um, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Who repent and put their faith in it. And so we said the benefits of that gospel comes in three phases, all right? So the second teaching was about phase one, which we call gospel status. That is, when you repent and believe, something happens to you. Not first what happens in you, but what something happens to you. That is, you receive a new status, almost like the way people who get married receive a new status. They move from bachelorhood or spinsterhood and become married, right? Husband and wife. And so there's a new status, a new thing about you. All right. So within that, that's where you can say, oh, now I am saved or now I am, I am a son of God or now I am a, a free person. Now I am bought with, uh, of God and redeemed. So all of the different identity markers the Bible uses, that's what we can say. But additionally, what you are given is the Holy Spirit. You are baptized in the Spirit. 
and then you get new life. You are born again on account of being baptized in the Spirit. You are born again to baptize in the Spirit is to receive the Spirit. So you receive the Spirit and it gives you new life. All right? Phase one. Now, that thing I just said about the Spirit has a lot to then do with phase two. All right? So in phase two, that's where we really did talk about the baptism of the Spirit and the new life in the Spirit. Even though, you know, it, it technically belongs to phase one. But we wanted to show what then, having received the Spirit, what then, you know, does our life consist of. And so the new life now that we receive, we are meant to grow in that new life in community because the Spirit baptizes us in Christ and puts us in community. So the Spirit creates the church. And so you are meant to grow in the church. He gives us gifts. The Spirit gives gifts. But you are meant to use those gifts in accord with the fruit of the Spirit. So you, are meant, you, are, you receive abilities, but you are meant to use those abilities in accord with the character that the Spirit is building in you. But you can only really build that character and serve in that community. And so gospel life is about building, growing up maturely, using the gifts of the Spirit within the community, but also with the community you are going on mission to continue to witness to Jesus Christ. So that's what the gospel life is about. Then finally, we talked about the gospel hope. What is the gospel hope? We said it's not about going to heaven. Heaven is like a waiting room for the true gospel hope that happens when Jesus returns. What is that gospel hope? Well, it's really about dwelling with God forever. It's really about the full-blown relationship with God forever, where we'll be able to see God's face and all our desires and pleasures will be totally fulfilled in our dwelling with God forever. But in talking about dwelling with God forever, what state or what condition can we be such that we can be with God? And where is the environment where we're going to do that? So the condition we'll be in is this resurrected condition where we'll receive bodies that cannot be corrupted, bodies that can never die, bodies that will never be weak. So that is our state. We'll live forever in a resurrected existence, just as Jesus Christ did when he rose from the dead. But also, the condition of the world will change. There will be no more evil. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more natural disasters. There will be no more diseases. There will be no more wars. And it will be in this world. So heaven and earth will be united. God's dwelling place and our dwelling place will be united. And that is what the hope of a believer is. It is resurrected existence and eternal dwelling with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This is, if you like, A, the gospel, its definition, but B, its effect for those who believe. It gives you a new status, you grow in life, and when Jesus Christ returns, we get the gospel hope. All right. So if we have that, the next thing is, and that is really what it is about today, if these things are true, what am I meant to do with it? Now, somebody would say evangelize, that is, go and preach the good news. I remember we said that's already part of what phase two is. Sadly, we are not doing a lot of evangelism in our times, largely because we don't truly know what the gospel is many times, or we are confused about it. But secondly, we are many times we are not equipped to even do it properly in our own time. And so evangelism is a huge issue and a big thing. But most Christians would not deny that. You may feel guilty about it, but they won't deny the fact that if I have the gospel, I'm meant to share it. All right? People know that. So that's not what we're talking about today, even though I would say that is so important. Somebody would also ask, though, okay, I'm meant to get saved. I'm meant to share the gospel, and I'm meant to wait for Jesus Christ to return. 
is that all the gospel does for me? ABC of Christianity until, until when Jesus returns? And I want to say today that no, the gospel has more to say. Because some people say, not all of us are like the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross believed and he was going to be with Jesus Christ in paradise and now he's waiting for his own resurrected existence. But for many of us, we get saved and believe the gospel at 10. And maybe you are going to live for another 70 years. Okay, is it all? the only place it speaks to in my life is um, um, for me to just, I don't know, uh, evangelize people, even though that's really important. You're going to say it's going to miss so much of the aspect of my life. Does it say more? And I say yes. In fact, the gospel, because of how we define it and the, implica- and the benefits of the gospel, it then has ramifications for how we think, for how we think. That is, the gospel that saves us is also the gospel that shapes us. It helps us to transform our view of the world, or what you can call our world view. There's a way the gospel helps us think so that we can practice life. In other words, the gospel gives us gospel ethics. We've done a gospel story, we know the gospel definition, we've seen the gospel status, the gospel um, uh, life, and the gospel hope. Now we want to talk about gospel ethics. And to do that, what I will do is to show you how this is done in the Bible. And I'll give three examples. Hopefully I can rush through them as quickly as possible. But then I want to then apply that to three other contemporary examples. So I will touch on um, ethnic reconciliation in the Bible, marriage, and forgiveness. Those three things. But also I will then touch on, for our contemporary um, examples, I'll touch on how the gospel affects Art and, uh, art and entertainment, how it affects um, uh, uh, social justice and generosity, and also how it affects mental well-being, how it affects mental well-being, okay? So with all of that having said, let us begin because I said there is a lot, and I hope we can get through them in time, okay? Okay. All right, so for those who are, we lost on Mixer, we're really sorry about that when we made the change. And just want to welcome you back as we want to get into the teaching for today proper. We are looking at how we apply the gospel to show that the gospel is not just the A to ABC of Christianity, it is the A to Z. How the gospel enables us to think, how the gospel gives us a new worldview. That is what we're talking about. That's what we call gospel ethics, okay? So I want to establish some of that. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 16, the Apostle Paul tells us about something that happened um, with Peter. Um, he says Peter came to Antioch. And when Peter, the other Apostle, Apostle Peter, when Peter was in Antioch, initially he used to eat with Gentiles. He used to eat with Gentiles. Don't forget Paul, Peter, and, many, and all the Apostles were what you call Jews. I'll get back into that. But they used to eat with Gentiles. And then a situation arose where some people came from Jerusalem. Some Jewish um, uh, Christians came from Jerusalem, and Peter was a bit scared that they would see him eating with Gentiles. And so Peter withdrew from them whilst those people were around. And Paul called that hypocrisy. He said that, in fact, he was affecting other Jews. He says... um, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, verse 13, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I, so you could see that Peter's hypocrisy was behaving one way when the Jews were around and was behaving another way when the Jews were not around. 
And so Paul confronted him. Now, I want you to understand the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. It wasn't something that was small. It's not something that was small. In fact, from the biblical standpoint, you can divide humanity into two groups as of this period, Jews and Gentiles. So Gentiles is call, you know, the nations in other places, ethnos, right? And it was dividing the world of humanity just based on those who were children of Abraham and bore the promise, the ethnic children of Abraham, and bore the promise, the promise of the Messiah coming, and those who didn't bear that same promise. Those who had the law of Moses, those who had temple sacrifices, those who came from, you know, Jacob's lineage, hence Israel, and those that didn't. That was a most significant division because it wasn't just a division about language. For instance, the Hittites and the, the Babylonians were divided by language as much as the Jews and the Babylonians were divided by language. It wasn't dividing the world by language. It was dividing the world based on the heritage of whether or not they had the promise that the Messiah that would come to bring about salvation in the world was through us or through us. And it was huge. The Jews prided themselves in that, and that was such a big thing for them. Now, because the law of Moses, because of that distinction, the law of Moses also forbade certain things that they were meant to do. And so most of the Jews that became Christians early on were still rooted in their Judaism and the, the restrictions that it brought. But Peter understood that he could eat with Gentiles. The problem was when other Jews came, he was now very scared. And so he now started to act as though, uh, as Paul says, he, how is it then that you, this verse 16, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul confronted him in his hypocrisy. But do you know what Paul didn't say? Paul did not say, um, Peter, that was so unnice of you. Peter, they are also human beings like you. And those two things are true. But what did Paul say? Look at verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. In other words, Paul was saying, you are violating something that the truth of the gospel would teach. Now, notice what Paul didn't say. Paul did not say, Peter, you are, now, you are no longer saved. It wasn't the gospel's ability to save. Peter had, put, had repented and put his faith in Christ through the gospel. So Peter was a Christian. Paul was saying, it is your actions not in line with the gospel. In other words, Paul was saying that you are not, this gospel that you believe, Peter, is the same gospel that should shape your actions. He wasn't talking about an experience. He was talking about how Peter was meant to view the Jews and the Gentiles. And what Paul was really saying is rooted both in Galatians 3.28, where he says, there is no Jew, neither Jew nor Gentile, say free, male, female, for you are all what one in Christ Jesus. Now, that's even expanded a whole lot more in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just read from verse 15b to 18. Paul says his purpose, that's Christ's purpose. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Which two? The two that is Jew and Gentile. In other words, he was saying, don't forget there are two ways of viewing humanity. Divided by Jew and Gentile. In God's own mind, that division was who had the promise, who didn't. 
As time went on, because of the sin in the people, the, the sin in the Jews themselves, they prided themselves in it, and so there was hostility between them and the Gentiles. So two humanities, one, the Jews and the non-Jews, Jews and Gentile. But he says that the, Jesus' um, uh, purpose was to create one humanity in himself. So he says, one humanity out of the two, thus making peace where there was hostility. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. In other words, he says to reconcile both of them to God. Both of them, as Paul shows in Romans chapter 3, are condemned before God. So what's there? Two different types of humanity. There's some unity they have. Unity in sin and their unity in condemnation. So both of them needed reconciliation to God. How do they achieve that reconciliation to God? To reconcile both of them to God, how? Through the cross. The same sin keeps them under the same condemnation. So even though there are distinctions that are there, there is some unity that is there. And so if the same sin keeps them under the same condemnation, they need to be reconciled to the same God through the same cross. And that's what the gospel offers. And so it's saying that, don't you see what happens when you were reconciled to God, when each of you individually was reconciled to God, Right? Your Jew-Gentile distinction didn't matter then. And therefore, in that reconciliation to God, through the death of Christ, the hostility between both of you should end. If the hostility between you and God should end, and now it is not about this ethnic division, now you are one humanity in Christ, then there should be no middle wall of hostility by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far, far away. That's the Gentiles. He preached the, he preached the peace of God. Now you have peace. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, um, uh, uh, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So the peace with God was preached to them through the gospel. And peace to those who were near. That is the Jews. Nearer to the promises. And then he says, for through him, Jesus Christ. Watch this Trinitarian, wonderful Trinitarian thing here. For through him, Jesus Christ, through his death, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Remember in phase one, it is our repentance and faith in the death, resurrection, and the entire part of the gospel that then unites us with God. But also in phase one, we have access to one spirit. And that's what Paul is saying here. And Paul is saying because of this new humanity, this reconciliation to God, then Christians who have been reconciled to God should be reconciled to one another and therefore within them the social, and the, uh, the social um, uh, uh, barriers that were once there and create hostility, they are now removed. There is therefore now no Jew and Gentile. There is therefore now no slave and free. There is therefore now no male and female. Now, don't mistake it. He's not saying there are no differences. But he's saying that the things that divide us are smaller than the things that have now united us. And there is therefore now a way we must consider all the things that divided us. Now, as I said, the, the difference in hostility and ethnic di division between the Jew and Gentile is the most significant one that you can find. But for instance, in Nigeria, we had a civil war in '67. And went to 70. And largely the people that fought against themselves in the civil war were the North, the Hausa, Fulanis, and the Igbos. And because of that civil war today, some people will say, some parents will say, their children cannot marry someone from the other tribe. 
And they say, you don't understand the history. Do you know what these people did to us? Oh, houses, some houses say, these evil people, they only like money. Some evil people say, do you know how much they slaughtered us? They are, they are out to get us. They really don't like us. And what's happening there is that our differences is leading to division. What Paul is saying here through these scriptures is, if you truly believe the gospel, and you see what it does in that you have that no tribe is without sin. You are all condemned under sin. No tribe is better than the other. We may have the unique things that bring us, that, that um, distinguish us from one another, right? Maybe the Hebrews are a whole lot more entrepreneurial. We have things that we should celebrate in our ethnicities, but we are all united and condemned under sin. So don't try to bring this ethnic superiority. However, there is a way we can be united because we are all reconciled to the same God through the same cross of Jesus Christ. And now we, have all, we all have one access by the Spirit. And if the Spirit of God is in you, then you are more united with that Igbo person, even though you are Hausa, than you are divided in your ethnicity. That is what the gospel achieves. And so you see that this is a way of applying the gospel. Applying the gospel to think about our issues. So when people quote the Bible for you that they said, Abraham said to, to his, his, um, his uh, servant, go and get one from our kindred, our tribe. Our, yes, but if you follow, it is true that is, Abraham said ethnically wise, don't get someone from my son, for my son to marry that is not part of this shared heritage. Yes, it's true, but now our true shared heritage is in Christ. That is why we will say a Christian should marry another Christian. And at that point, your ethnic divisions don't matter. Now, having said all of that, that does not mean we should not discuss the divisions and the differences. In fact, the gospel's unity gives us the platform to discuss our difference. Honest conversations need to be had. And so, for instance, you look at what is going on in the United States, for instance, now, where people are being divided over race. Now, I should say that if you actually look at the history of this thing, race is not really a, social, is not a valid social category. It is trying to divide people by the color of their skin. But if you read the Bible, for instance, there are no divisions. No one understands people by the division of the color of their skin. But through sin and because of the oppression some people went to cause, this social, this category that people who are black may have different sizes of brains, you know, their lips are fuller and all of those kind of things. And on account of that, they think in a different way than people who are white. And then people who are brown and people who are Asian, uh, people who are, I don't even know what would be the color of their own skin. And so these things were then used to oppress others because historically, they now said that the blacks were three-fifths human and all of those things. Now, that has led to a legacy of oppression. First of all, there was actual oppression slavery, then colonialism, then constant segregation, oppression, and all of those things. Those are conversations that must be had. And people who have had the privilege, even though they weren't the ones that enslaved people, but the legacy, the legacy of that enslavement, the impoverishment that was passed down the line has benefited them. And so, even though white and black should worship in the same space, on account of that unity, on account of the cross that brings them together, honest conversations should be had. In this country, honest conversations should be had about the Civil War. 
and honest conversation should be had about the things that divide us because we have a greater unity in Christ's cross. We have a greater unity in his resurrection. We have a greater unity in having the same father that we have access to because of the one spirit that we have. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says there's one, there's one God, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one hope, there's one spirit that we all have. And on account of that unity, we're able to talk about our differences, right, in peace. We're able to talk about our differences and, and account for history and the things that have divided us. For, as it says in Ephesians 2.14, he is our peace. And so that's on ethnic reconciliation. Let's move on to something else. I don't want to spend time on this one, but some of you are married. I am married. I really want to speak to just the men, you know. Men, why do you love your wife? How do you love your wife? Now, one reason for loving your wife is that you can love your wife so that your wife will not embarrass you in public. Because if you treat your wife badly, <laughs> one day, one day, you'll be with your friends, you know, the manager's in the office, and she'll just talk about what a stupid and wicked man you are. <laughs> and she'll say it very, very easily. Embarrass you. Another reason you should love, some of you will say, I love my wife and treat my wife well, is because if I don't, she'll turn my children against me. And then later in life, my children will not love me. And so you fear that kind of loneliness. Some other people will say, ah, <laughs> Sadly, oh, my mom didn't cook, teach me how to cook. I don't have enough time to cook. I depend on my wife for my food. I'm not saying all of us do, but some of you do. And so you're like, if I treat this woman badly, one day, one day, she'll go and put uh, rat poison inside. You should not anger the person who is responsible for giving you a meal, right? So those are reasons for us to love our wives, right? They are pragmatic reasons, and I would say that they're not, it's not totally... It's not foolish, right? But how does the Bible say we should love our wives? Why does it say we should love our wives? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, you can find verse, from verse 25, 28. Husbands, love your wives. All right, the instruction is there. But how? Is there a model through which I'm meant to build the love of my wife upon? Just as Christ loved the church. Oh, Christ loves the church. Okay, just love my wife because I just love her. How does Christ love the church? He just loves it. Uh, how does he demonstrate his love to the church? Uh, he just, I don't know, he buys the church gifts or something. I don't know. So I just love my wife. Maybe because the church is good looking. Jesus Christ loved the church because she's good looking. So love your wife because she's good looking. Problem is, when you no longer find her good looking, what happens? But in fact, the problem is that's not how Christ loved the church. Christ did not love the church because the church was good looking. In fact, the church was bad looking. The church wasn't beautiful. In other words, your love for your wife cannot always be whether you feel good about her because Christ didn't love the church that way. What did he do? He gave himself up for her. In other words, Christ sacrificed himself for the church. And in doing that, he's making her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word in order to present himself as a radiant, present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Do you see what he's saying? Essentially, Paul is saying the way you love your the reason that you should love your wife is because Christ loved the church and you are part of the church. 
But then he then says, the way you love your wife is to, is, is to sacrifice for her, self-sacrifice for her own good. The result of loving your wife in that way is that your wife gets better and better and better. Many guys have had to counsel, many marriages have had to counsel, and sadly, as I've said before, I, go, I started getting gray hair just because of marriage counseling. And I often ask them, you, many times, what comes up is the complaints and the complaints or the complaints about my wife, she is not respecting me, my wife, uh, she's not giving me enough time, my wife, you understand? Sometimes he's giving himself to work, she's working, and then they both come back home late, and he's wondering why she hasn't cooked for him. She's putting the children to bed, she's doing all that, and wondering why she's not cooking for him. And I'm okay, what are you doing to self-sacrifice? Jesus Christ laid his life down for his church. That is the basis upon which he tells you to, to love your wife. Yes, she may not be giving you everything you want, but are you looking and waiting first and foremost for a response, or are you responding to the love that Christ showed you in laying down his life for you? Do you see that the motivation, the result, and the demonstration of how a man is to love his wife is built on the gospel? He is not saying at this point, this is how, oh guy, you get saved. He's saying, if you are truly saved and you understand the gospel, should that not shape the way you act towards your wife? Do you see how the gospel, the understanding of the gospel, starts to shape our ethics and behavior? The Spirit gives us power. In Ephesians 5.18, before it gets to this thing, it says, be filled with the Spirit. So the Spirit is the power, the fuel, but the way we are meant to think, you see, you bring the power and you bring the ethics together. The way we are meant to think and the power to enable that all are in the gospel. The, the Spirit is given to us because of the gospel. And then the Spirit enlightens us through that gospel in how we should live our life. We need power and we need thought. We need life and we need light. And that light comes through our meditation on the gospel to apply to the issues of our lives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Sacrifice yourself for her own good. That leads me to another thing. Forgiveness. Mm, I should take water before I talk about that one. Because forgiveness is very hard. Though. I'm not talking about the person that looked at you with bad eye. You know, some of us, we have never forgiven people because they looked at us with bad eye. Whatever bad eye is, ojuburuku, <laughs> you know, bad eye. No, I'm talking about what some of us have gone through. Terrible betrayal. Terrible betrayal. There's a reason why some of us in churches are unable to, I don't talk with that person, I don't talk with that person. Many churches are divided within because that person, you say, ah, please, oh, you and this person come together, come up with a prayer, um, uh, the structure for our prayer meet or, uh, meeting that is coming up, and you're like, no, I can't talk to that person. I'm like, why? We're divided, why? Because this is what this person did to me. And you, when you consider the pain, or better still, you know, the person, maybe this person defrauded me. Like, there are terrible things people have done to us. Or some of us, it is rooted in something, maybe a family member who has done terrible things to you over the years. Forgiveness is hard. And you know that the Bible tells you to forgive. Some people say forgive, just why? Just forgive for the sake of forgiving now. Really? That sounds cruel. Some people say forgive for your own self because if you don't forgive, you'll be bitter and that won't help you. You'll not be, it won't be good for you. Now, 
I do think there's value in that because truly the person who doesn't forgive, he eats them up. Most times the person that hasn't forgiven is the person that is more affected, not the person that they refuse to forgive. So it's true. For your own well-being, forgive somebody, but it doesn't account for what that person did to you. To you. It doesn't recognize it. To just move on, just because of myself, doesn't recognize it. Doesn't recognize the pain you're going through. So what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 4? From Ephesians chapter 4, 31 to 5, verse 2. Paul says this, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. A lot of these things are things that come as a result when we are unforgiving in our nature. He then says, on a, and diff, and What you should do, alternatively, is be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. You see, Paul is just doing exactly what I just said. Paul is just saying, forgive for the sake of forgiving. Paul just sounds like a cruel person. Like some of those cruel people say, can't you just move on? Can't you just forgive? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And they'll just be holding you. They'll now be hugging you and just be forgive, putting hand on your shoulder. As though that actually removes the pain. And maybe Paul falls into that category. He says, just be compassionate with one another. I can understand how I'll be compassionate with that person there and that one there. They are nice people, but not her. Paul says, be compassionate. In fact, Paul says, forgiving one another. But you see, Paul doesn't leave us there. He roots that, that command, that instruction in something else. He says, just as in Christ, God forgive you. Just as in Christ, God forgive you. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as beloved children, and walk in the way of love. That is, it is the way of love that enables you to forgive that person because that is how God forgave you in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In love, he gave so that he can forgive. And says, follow God's example. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see what he's saying? Paul is saying that you should forgive on account of the gospel. You see, Jesus addresses it. This scripture is not going to be on your screen, so I'm just going to look at it. Jesus addresses it in Matthew chapter, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to um, 35. Jesus tells a parable. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read the entire thing. I'm just going to draw from it. But Jesus tells the parable of a particular um, guy. He's a very wicked guy. He's an unmerciful servant. That's what it's called. So when Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And then it says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like, in other words, the, what Paul instructs you, Jesus is going to teach. He's saying the people who are part of my kingdom are people who forgive. And let me illustrate this with this parable. So Peter, uh, Jesus now tells us about um, a king. That king went to settle his account. And then there was a particular servant who owed him money. In fact, the money that he owed him is 10,000 bags of gold. That 10,000 bags of gold it was worth, in that time, 20 years of a day laborer's wage. 20 years. 20 years of a day laborer's salary. That's what he owed him. So, the man now said, ah, just have mercy upon me. Be patient. I, I will pay back everything. What kind of stupid thing is that? 
By that time, we'll have reached pensionable age. He will not be able to pay. And won't his children eat? Won't his wife eat? Won't he send his children to school? But he said they can't pay everything. In fact, Master was just like, the only way you're going to pay it is that you will have to sell all your, your children, your wife and your children. So he, he, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. In other words, he, on account of his debt, he was putting his generations into slavery. It wasn't something he could pay. So how is he ever going to pay that debt back? He couldn't pay it back. In other words, the only way the debt could be paid back is if the debt was cancelled. So the servant's master took pity on him and cancelled the debt and let him go. So he was free. However, that same, master, that same servant found one of his own fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. A hundred silver coins. That's hundred days wages. In other words, what he, was, what he owed his own master was 72 times, at least 72 times more than what this other person owed him. You know what he did? He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. The servant fell on his knees and begged him and used the exact same words that he used for his own master, the king. Be patient with me and I will pay back. He could pay back. But this man refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. How would he pay the debt when he's in prison? This story should outrage you. I'm sure it does. As a child, it used to outrage me. And Jesus tells this story really to outrage us. You should be outraged. Sadly, when we don't forgive, we're just like that guy. Do you know why? Don't forget that Paul says, forgive as God has forgiven you. What was wrong with this guy? Don't forget that his debt was 72 times, at least 72 times more than the other. But what happened was that he underappreciated how the size of his debt. And therefore, he underappreciated the magnanimity of his, the mercy that was shown him. He, he, he elevated, even though in reality, he elevated the debt that was owed him above the debt that he owed, even though in reality it wasn't the case. And so he could not show the same mercy that he was given. Do you know what? Many times, and I'm not saying that what you are going through is, diff is not difficult. I am sure it is. I am sure it is. It's been difficult for me to, to show forgiveness to some people. I'm not trying to, to belittle it, and I'll, and I'll explain even a little bit further after. But, essentially, when we don't forgive, and Paul tells us, forgive because God has forgiven you. When we don't forgive, when we find ourselves unable to forgive, you know why? It is because we feel that the thing that has been done to us is greater than the sin that we have committed against God. As simple as that. The sin, we value the sin that has been committed against us, we, we value it to be higher than the sin that we have committed against God. That is what this parable says. You see, Paul is not trying to hinge your forgiveness based on how that person is reacting. He doesn't hinge it based on, the, on, on the response of that person, whether they're repentant uh, about what they did to you. He hinges it on 
what God has done for you. Just as Jesus in that parable, shouldn't you have forgiven this guy after I had forgiven you? Whether or not the guy was begging or not. Do you see the, magn the, 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 the weight of what your sin is before God? Because what is the size of our debt before God? I'll tell you what it is. It is nothing more. The way you can evaluate the size of our debt is that it cost God his very life. God the Son himself had to become a human being to take on our, the consequences of our sin. That is the size of your sin. That is the size of your sin. The size of your sin is an infinite debt that you can never pay back. You will never if you are given the chance all eternity, you will never be able to pay back. And God forgave that for you in Christ. So why can't you let that person go? And the thing with forgiveness is that it is not hinged on the person's response. Reconciliation between you and that person is hinged on if the person repents, genuinely repents on their sin. But forgiveness, to have no ill will towards that person, is hinged on what? The gospel. And is it painful? Yes, of course it's painful. Because really, when you have to forgive somebody, when you cancel the debt, it is free for that person, but it is not free for you. You know how we know that? Don't you, if you have to, have you ever forgiven somebody deeply? It's like, it's like your body, it's like your mind, your emotions are disintegrating because you are having to think about what the person did. I remember speaking with somebody uh, recently, just a number of months ago, who could not forgive her stepmom. Could not forgive, and we went through this parable. And by the time I started pressing on what this thing meant, the person that was in front of me that was chatty and laughing and all of that, deep tears started to come because she was, the pain, she was feeling the pain and knew that if she had to let that woman go for all the things that she committed against her, it meant that she had to absorb the pain. But let me ask you, don't you see that when God forgave us, he came to us freely, but he had to absorb the pain. Look at the cross. Your sin cost God his life. Forgiveness is always painful. It is painful to the one that is giving it. And it costs the other person nothing. Forgive as in Christ, God forgive you as well. So you see in those three examples how the gospel, understanding first. You see, the key first is to understand the gospel. Many times, Christians, we try to live our ethics outside of the gospel. We try to live our ethics. You say, some of you say, okay, why should I value myself? Well, because you are beautiful. Ah, but I don't feel beautiful. I just say it that you are beautiful. Why should I be kind to that person? Why should I be nice? Why should I forgive that person? Just do it. Aren't you Christians? And we don't root it in the gospel. What we see in the New Testament is how our ethics is to be shaped, how our worldview is to be shaped by the gospel. So that makes me now say, let me apply it to three other things. Let us take... Um, oh, the first thing we should take, let's take art and entertainment. Art and entertainment. You see... There's always some challenge about, you find some Christians that would say something like, um, if you're into art, singing, music, all of that, as a Christian, you should only sing Christian songs. You should only sing Christian Now, first of all, <laughs> we need Christians writing Christian songs. They're explicitly Christian songs. I mean, what are we going to use to be worshipping our churches and all that? Yes, there are songs that have been sung in the past, but you should always be releasing fresh songs each new age 
um, God gives the talent of music writing and all those things to people. So we need people to be expertly making art that uh, people to be making art that is expertly Christian. All right. But it's possible to be engaged in art, entertainment, music, filmmaking, all of those things, where, where, in a way that is not explicitly Christian, but is done by a Christian. In a way that is not explicitly Christian, but has a Christian worldview shaping it. Do you understand what I mean? So that the song is itself is, is, is telling you something about the gospel without it being explicit. You see, this is why Christianity has always inspired great art. You know why? Because Christianity offers a realistic and hopeful picture of the world. True art, good art, should always be about achieving three things that the philosophers call the transcendentals. True, uh, good art should be about demonstrating truth. And whatever is true is going to be good. And whatever is good is going to be beautiful. Truth, goodness, and beauty. And so, art has always been inspired by the gospel. And I want to show you how, for instance, an aspect of the gospel that we treated, the gospel story. Now, the gospel story is not the gospel, but it's part of what helps you give you this gospel ecology. And so, thinking about that can inspire our art. What does the gospel story show us? Remember, it is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. This paradigm can help you if you are a creative, if you are in the arts, in the entertainment, think about how to be gospel-centered with your music, how to be gospel-centered with your comedy, how to be gospel-centered with your art, how to be gospel-centered with your creativity and your art. First of all, what does it tell us? Creation. Creation. In fact, the psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. It enables us to consider creation. It's just like Louis Armstrong. When he sang his song, what did he, say? What did he call the song? What a beautiful world. I see, I see, I see. skies of blue, um, birds of, no, okay, I can't remember, skies of blue. Clouds, birds of, uh, skies of blue, clouds of white, um, and all of these things. He's saying color, color. Creation tells us that this world that came to be did not come by accident. It did not come by, by random. Um, there's a view of evolution. It's not the only view of evolution, but there's a view of evolution that takes into what we call, uh, 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 that is evolution plus what we call natural selection, basically meaning that the world was e evolved without any guided hand. It just was evolving has no intentionality. In other words, everything that we see was by accident. It is hard to actually do good art, good art with that. Like, you can, have, you can believe that, but how did that happen? How, why are we painting something beautiful about the world that we see when we don't even think that that thing has any meaning, when it didn't arrive there with any kind of intentionality? But the creator, seeing that this world, seeing that this world was created intentionally by a creator, allows you, gives you the basis to reflect in your art something about the goodness of that creation. Think about it. God gave us colors. He gave us a rainbow. He gave us birds, but he didn't give us birds in just one species. And some of these birds, you look at them like, how come the yellow is here and the beak is red? And just for you to admire, God gave us not just food, but he gave us cuisine as well. Creation. 
But then, we also see in this world as we observe that there's something fundamentally out of whack. There's sickness, there's injustice, there's sexual sacrilege, there's corruption, there's mental illness. While we see the intentional creation here and we see some beauty in it, we also see that it's so mad. And so on the one hand, your, your art can depict creation in, in, in its beauty, but on the other hand, it can explore these difficult, difficult conditions. You can pen lyrics that deal with mental illness, the reality of it, so that people can understand. Many times, if, if a scientist is describing what mental illness is like, you don't understand. But Psalm, 80, uh, Psalm 88 ends with these words. Darkness is my closest friend. Darkness is my closest friend. One of the greatest bands ever, I would say, they, a, a group called, a duo called Simon and Garfunkel. They sing this song. It is one of the most beautiful songs ever. It's called the sound, of, the sound of Silence. The Sound of Silence. Do you know how it starts? Hello, darkness, my old friend. It starts with the way Psalm 88 ends. You see, there's a way your creativity and your art is able to send truth to people because it has beauty in it and also because you can reach the imagination in a way a scientist can't. And so, therefore, your art becomes power. And I'm saying that the framework of the gospel enables you to do that because there's creation, but there's also a fall. But many people only want to remain and explore the fall. Well, this paradigm says that something has been done about it, and that's where we get to redemption. That's where we get to redemption. So if Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us that the heavens are like God's canvas where he paints. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. It, de it depicts the glory of the Lord. But however, redemption also depicts the glory of the Lord. And the redemption that is offered is not a trite redemption. It's a redemption that takes creativity and talks about beauty, but also beauty in a way that accounts for the ugliness in the world. What do I mean by that? The redemption that God brings shows us glory in beauty, but at the same time, it shows us that glory in beauty by being truly conversant with the ugliness that is in the world. If you check Isaiah 53, it tells us about the Messiah that is going to be crucified on the cross. It shows us that the resolution for the, redem uh, the, resolution for the problems that are in the world is coming in a form that is not a king that is just riding and just destroying all the enemies. It is someone who identifies with the pain. Existentially, he understands it. He becomes ugly, if you like. That's why in Isaiah 53, 1 to 3, he speaks about the gospel. He says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now he talks about what that message is. It's about a person. He grew up. Before him, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Because the world, in many ways, is not attracting um, The world, in many ways, is not attracting us. And so that when the Savior came, when the Savior came, he wasn't going to be attracted. And especially when he was saving the world, nothing in his appearance. That we should desire him. He was despised, despised and rejected 
by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. In other words, God's means of salvation looks very ugly, doesn't it? And yet, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, he says, you know what this cross is going to show you? It's going to show you glory. It's going to show you beauty. In John chapter 12, verse 28, 32, 33, he says, Father, as before he just goes to the cross, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Then a voice come, came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And then Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The death of Jesus Christ showed the glory of God. On the one hand, it was the most despicable thing that you can ever see because the world in many ways is despicable. On the other hand, the future that he was taking it to was glorious and therefore the cross is both at the same time ugly and the most beautiful thing. That is art for you. And so your, your songwriting can in some ways depict about the pain and yet beauty that comes out of pain. There's so much you can do. The gospel isn't boring. It gives, you, it gives you depths, depths of truth and beauty for you to, to plumb. And then, of course, we know where this is all going. It shows that there is an end of this deliverance. And we see that in Revelation 21, that this world that you see, some part of it ugly, some part of it beautiful, is eventually going to all end in beauty. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Sometimes, as artists, you have to give hope. Hope is not lying, except the gospel is not true. Don't forget, the gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And true art, true art, good art, should be both an expression and a reflection of beauty, goodness, and truth. What the gospel shows you is truth. From the very beginning, this world was created intentionally, but at the same time, this, this world is ugly because of all that sin has brought in, but at the same time that God has done something about it, and therefore God is taking it somewhere. There is hope there. And so as an artist, you cannot only just give us the, the, describing the, the terrible things of this world or how we deal with it. Show us where we are going. Show us where we are going. Let your poetry also offer hope. Let your... Um, spoken word also offer hope. Because that is what truth shows us. And if it is true, it will be good. And if it is good, it will be beautiful. I need to move on because I want to talk about our... Wow, I don't think I can finish all of this today. But let's see. Let's talk about social justice and generosity. Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Why do you think he said that in Luke chapter 6, verse 20? He said, blessed are the poor... He's not saying that just first and foremost, inherently in poor people, that all poor people will be saved. It's the same way he says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as this when he's talking about children. He's basically saying there's something about children in contrast to adults that, that will show you more about the kingdom. There's something about poor people in contrast to the middle class or the wealthy that will show you more about how to enter the kingdom. So, for instance, rich people often will deal with what? Self-sufficiency. As he says in Matthew 19, verse 24, it's very hard for it's harder for a, a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. 
middle-class people often deal with uh, 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 works righteousness because they think that you, the, the life that you built, you worked hard for it. But destitute poor people, guess what? They understand grace more readily than middle class and very rich people. That's what Jesus means. Why? Because for them to come out of the condition that they are in, the terrible condition that they are in, without any social connections, without anybody willing to invest in them, without the requisite education that enables you to, um, uh, to get scarcity of skills, without all of those things, they are going to be poor and their children will also be poor. Because now they can't send their children to school. So the only way they're going to come out of their condition is if somebody is gracious to them and lifts them out. The poor immediately understand grace. More immediately understand grace than a rich person or a middle class person. And Jesus' gospel comes via grace. It comes via grace. So what he's saying is look at the poor and then you can know your spiritual condition. Even if I'm not poor, it says, look at the poor, you can know your spiritual condition. In, in the same reference of Luke 6.20, he expands on it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, in the Beatitudes, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, when you look at the destitute nature of a, a, of a really poor person, you should know what your spiritual condition is. We are morally bankrupt. And it will take the riches of God's grace, as Paul says, in Ephesians 2 verse 7, when he refers to the riches of God's grace, it will only take the riches of God's grace to remove us, for there's nothing we can do, to remove us out of that condition. So that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 describes the gospel in this way. Very, very wonderful. He says, for you know the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. People may use that scripture to justify that um, as Christians, if you are poor, you can become rich. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about we were poor. Our moral bankruptcy required the riches of God's grace in the gospel to lift us up. And that required Jesus Christ coming, taking on human flesh, that is his poverty, and dying on, he, he was actually literally poor as well, as well, and then dying like a poor man, a poor criminal, so that we can be spiritually lifted. It is the riches of his grace. We, he has given us all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, this is how the poor man's condition is normally learned from them. Now, if you see that you are just like that poor man, and you are someone with middle class um, uh, um, uh, uh, wealth, or you have significant wealth, he then says, you should never view your wealth nor view the poor in the same way. Again, if you truly understand the gospel and how the gospel saved you, you should never think, you shouldn't view. Too many of us, when beggars come, we send them away. Too many of us, we blame people for the condition they're in. They just didn't work hard, whereas they work longer hours than us. We are not viewing them the right way. We need to view them the way God viewed us before he lifted us up. You can't use your riches in the same way again. You must use your riches in accordance with the gospel. That's why Paul says to uh, the rich in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, self-made millionaire, self-made billionaire, not to put their hope in wealth. Nothing can happen to me. I will never be poor again. 
which is so uncertain. It's not that money doesn't get you things in this life, but it is totally uncertain in the life that is to come. But they should put their hope in God. In other words, God, putting your hope in God gives you certainty. He richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. 18, command them, therefore, this is what you do with your wealth now. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. And when he's saying this, he's talking about materially, because he then says, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. You see what he does? He gives you the hope of the gospel in the life to come. And he says, in anticipation of what you are sowing for the life that is to come, do good here. For some people, when they give, they use it to control people. They use it to get the adulation of people. So that when a poor person sends them a text, ah, you are just wonderful, ah, if not for you, then they now start sharing that text to everybody. They start feeling good just because that poor person has told them how great they are. And so they start feeling, they use philanthropy as a way to justify themselves. Don't ever do that. God says as you do it, you have already received grace. You've already received riches from me. Now respond with generosity. And then as you do that, don't you know what you are doing? You are sowing in it, uh, 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 for, for your rewards in the life to come. He's not saying it is by giving to the poor and being generous that you become saved. But he's basically saying that you are ensuring, you are ensuring that, yes, you deserve that inheritance that you are getting. That's why in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 13, when he commands generosity, he says that you cannot unhinge it from the gospel. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, because of the service by which you have proved this service of generosity by which you have proved your salvation, you've proved your salvation through it, others will praise God for the obedience, watch this, that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Your obedience to generosity is, a, is, a, it is an action that makes consistent, that is consistent with your confession of what? The gospel. You see, the gospel shapes us to be generous people. Why? Because it is in the gospel that God gave us. He gave. Therefore, you should give. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. You cannot view your possessions the same way. And you cannot, you can't view your possessions the same way. It is not yours. Give in the same way God has richly given to you. But also, you should not view the poor in the same way because you are like them. What do the poor need from you? Don't forget what the gospel says. The gospel says that we have a just God that justifies us. Remember in, in, the, in phase one, the part of what it does is that if you repent and believe, it puts you in a law court metaphor. It says you are unrighteous, but on account of the gospel, you have been made righteous. In other words, you are unjust, unrighteous, and now you've been made just. So that's the way you are made, the way an unrighteous person becomes a righteous person is that they are made just. They are made just. So God makes an unrighteous person just through the gospel. And that seems unjust. Does that mean God is unjust? Look at what Romans, 5, Romans 3 says. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate that he, God, is righteous. The sacrifice of Christ was to show that God was righteous because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. For God to be just, he has to punish sins. 
So he punished those sins on Christ to demonstrate that he is truly righteous. But it is in that act of justice upon Christ that God was able to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. God makes people who are unrighteous just, but he remains just because he still makes sure that their unrighteous deeds are punished in Christ. That is the gospel. So in the gospel, we see a God who is just and makes people just, righteous. And so justice is so fit, the, 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 the metaphor of justice is so important for the gospel. So what do the poor need? They need justice. Now, many times when we think about justice, we think about only the punishment part. Yes, God punished Christ. But we don't think about the restorative part of, of, of justice. Let me, let me explain further. Remember that the gospel shows us two things about our condition in sin. One, we are rebels. Two, we are victims. One, we are rebels. Two, we are victims. We are rebels in that we break God's law. But we are victims in that we cannot not break God's law. We are rebels in that God has said this is how you should behave. And therefore, when we break it, we are to be punished. But we are victims in that we are controlled by sin. Indwelling sin. So we cannot not break God's law. So if God just punished us simply based on the law, there was no other hope for us. In other words, yes, there's punishment that should be meted out for justice, but justice also requires that we are delivered. Victims need deliverance. While rebels, yes, should get punishment. Both of them is justice. Don't forget that God's justice towards us, God's, uh, uh, the gospel towards us, ensured that he saw us in our pitiful condition and he did all that was required to bring us out. It was effective. God's justice was effective to bring us out of our condition. So when you see a poor person, what he's saying in reciprocation, when you have to give justice, and this is the sense in which justice is always social. Because justice is always coming from a person to a person. It is social in its nature. That's why we say social justice. And social justice means, yes, people should get their due by the law. By the law in the sense that if they break it, there should be punishment for it. But not forgetting that there are some people who are under the law that the law doesn't work for them. They need deliverance. Paul in Romans chapter 7 says this about uh, Romans 7 uh, verses 12 to 14. I think this is really important. In examining the law, the law of God that was given to Israel, Paul says this. Look, this law is, this law, verse 12, this law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good because it came by God. But he then says, but the law is somehow condemning me. So he then says, that, but did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Is the law, is the law which is good become death to me? No. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it is used what it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I, because of indwelling sin, am unspiritual, I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. 
Many times we say, these people are acting virtuously. These people, they need to be brought. We need to clear the beggars. We need, if they committed, if they stole. I am not saying, yes, they should be under the law. But Paul is also saying, by the virtue of God's law, because we, have, we are incapable of being able to keep that law perfectly, the only way justice can actually, we can live by justice and be made righteous is if we get deliverance. So many poor people, you say that they are breaking laws, but the only way they can survive is if they break the law. They need deliverance. That's why Paul at the end says this, Who shall deliver me? Deliver me. Who shall deliver me? What wretched man I am, who shall deliver me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He doesn't just tell us, live by the law. Just as many times we tell people, just work hard. Don't view the poor in that way. View the poor in the way God views you as morally poor. And so that means that our justice to the poor also requires restoring and helping them. We can't just look at the issues of, of the, the issue of breaking the law. We have to look at the conditions, the underlying conditions that put people in the position to break the law. We should talk about police brutality, but we should also talk about the conditions that lead police uh, to bring about brutality. We should talk about punishing people with rape, uh, for, 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 putting, uh, for, for raping people, but we should talk about the conditions that lead people to actually rape. It's one thing to punish people for raping women, but how have we viewed women? women? The justice that women need is not just the justice for punishing people that rape people. The system doesn't work for them. One of the saddest things I had to see this whole week was reading comments by young men making fun of women, young girls that were killed and raped. Even if you punish somebody that was, uh, if punish someone that's raped, you, are sti you still have an army of young men with their view of women who will continue to perpetrate this. Or if some of them become police officers, if some of them become uh, uh, lawyers, if some of them become judges, they will be asking for all the evidence they need. Almost like they need a cam, a, a, you need a video cam when somebody was raping you. Because of their view of women, women need the kind of justice that enables us to view them as human beings. We need to empower women. Part of the problem is that women are, they are an oppressed, they are an oppre the oppressed agenda because they are disempowered. In many parts of our country, girls are not educated while the men are educated. What do you think that means? When they have to marry, they have to marry men and be under the abuse because they control the ability to feed them. We need to think about justice reform on how rape is handled, knowing that it is difficult for people to come out. I, I think I saw a statistic that says 80 something, 85%, 85% of people who are raped will not come out and say it. You can't just appeal to the law. At that point, the law has a problem. And we as gospel people that believe in deliverance, deliverance from the, sake, from the law condemning us because we have no ability in ourselves, we need to do something about it because we are acting in line with the gospel. That's why Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has shown you. He has shown you 
oh mortal, what is good? And what the Lord requires of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to, uh, and, sorry, to, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Christians ought to be people of justice, people of social justice. There are some other people that do social justice out of other foundations of truth. We do social justice out of the foundation of the gospel. Finally, I want to talk about mental well-being. I'm sorry I've taken too much time. And actually, I want to talk about two things under this mental well-being, but I think I can only talk about one. I was going to talk about acceptance, rejection. All I would say is this. If you struggle with being, because a lot of people who go through depression and all of those things. Let me first start with this. What the gospel narr narrative teaches us is this. That human beings, when, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it, it was a spiritual relationship that was broken. But that, break, that breaking of the spiritual relationship then led to brokenness in social relationships, Adam and Eve. It led to brokenness in environmental, biological, physiological relationship. The ground was cursed. But it also led to a, break, a, a brokenness in psychological relationships with ourselves. God asked Adam, where are you? It's not that God didn't know where Adam was, but Adam had lost his sense of identity by, by, by hiding from God. You can't really hide from God. Adam had lost sense of identity of his place with God, having somebody who was created in God's image, but now he's hiding from God. Adam was disintegrated psychologically. That's what sin does. I'm not saying that you are going through mental illness because you are sinning. I'm saying the sin in the world that has been brought into the world has broken us in all of these places. And therefore, when we are trying, at least what we've done in City Church in trying to help people to deal with mental illness is that we identify those four categories. And we always say that the church can help you with two and a half and one and a half you seek outside. So one and a half, the physiological, biological aspects of it, we can deal with that, seek professional help. But then there are also some psychological aspects of it we can't deal with. Some of them we can't. So we say half, seek professional help. But in terms of the spiritual, that's what the church should give in terms of the gospel. And, the com and then in terms of the social, the church should also give that in terms of the gospel community that the gospel has given in the church. And then there is a way we are also able to take the, the aspects of the gospel and apply it psychologically. And so, for instance, if you deal, as many people deal with acceptance and rejection, you are, uh, you are, acceptance is an idol to you. Acceptance is an idol to you. Okay, I've already started talking about it. I said I will talk about it. Acceptance is an idol to you. The problem is that we often enter many times depression when people who we value reject us. We are always in fear of those people rejecting us. They may have accepted us. Maybe you are in a relationship and many of people are abused in relationships because they don't want them to break up with them because the acceptance of you is the all that matters to you. Because our greatest fear, because acceptance is our idol, our greatest fear is rejection. Here's what the gospel tells you. It's true that people of value accepting your matters who should value, who, should, who is the one of greatest value? God. Because our relationship with God, for good or for ill, has eternal ramifications. And what happened in the gospel? In the gospel, what happened to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ on the cross said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus Christ was rejected so that you will be accepted. And when, he, when you are accepted, this is such a cornerstone of the, 
of the, of, of the gospel that you find in no other religion, he gives us assurance that when you are saved, you are saved. God has accepted you. You who has always been rejected from everybody, guess what? The Lord and God of the entire universe says you are in my family. You are in my family. Guaranteed. In, in fact, in 1 John 4, uh, 17 to 18, he says, you can have boldness on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, God will not say, go this other way. Why? Because of the gospel. Because he has shown his love to you. He says, perfect love, the love that should give you boldness on the day of judgment, perfect love casts out fear. Because fear is a torment. Fear of rejection is a torment. But the fear we should have is the fear of God rejecting us. And if you believe the gospel, you will never be rejected. Why? Because God demonstrated this love for us in this way. Verse 4, uh, chapter 4, 1 John 4, verse 9 to 10. He commended his love to us in this way. This is how he showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and has sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Use the gospel to help you with acceptance. In that way, because the one that, that has the, the one that you should value the most has accepted you, you can deal with the pain of others that you value that have rejected you. It will pain, but because God will never reject you, you can, you can rise up again. Finally, it has been, I have to tell you, it has been a very hard day for me. This day didn't start well. It didn't start well. I received, within a space of two hours, I received about six, six different types of bad news. And I was, I was truly in despair. I, well, I wasn't in despair. I was moving towards that. And I don't know. I was just thinking it was... It, so it's, but it's not just been a difficult day. For many of us, it has been a difficult week. When you think about it, it's actually been... For many of us, we can't wait for 2020 to just go. It has been an exhausting year. And part of the, way, the reason it's exhausting is because we keep noticing problems upon problems and many of these intractable problems that we see, we find ourselves unable to solve them. And so what you see on the news, if you are someone in the state, you see racism right there. But for one aspect of the news that a lot of us don't like looking at is the war in the Middle East. It continues to rage. Yemen is totally broken. Syria is totally broken. Here in Nigeria, we see more and more, look at the issue of the rape issue, the police brutality issue. It's like, where would this thing end? And I, I'm not confirming, I'm not, I don't, because I don't, I'm not very close to this situation, but I know another pastor has been accused of, of, of sexual uh, uh, molestation. And what I'm saying, because I don't know the details of, of the entire thing, so I'm not saying that, but what I do know is that when I saw Twitter comments about it and what people were saying, all these young pastors, that's what they do. And many people say, don't you see why, that Christianity is false? Don't you see that Christianity is just a sham? That broke my heart. And so many of you haven't looked at the racism issue, haven't looked at how leaders are feeling. You are just disappointed, 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 and you are now going down a slide, a negative slide into despair. That mental condition of despair. And I asked God at one point today, I'm not somebody that often says the Spirit speaks to me, but the Spirit spoke to me. At this point, I just said, God, I do need some good news right now. And almost immediately, I heard the Spirit of God say to me, well, you know where to find that, don't you? And you know where to find that. 
Of course it's in the gospel. Because you're asking to my despair, the despair I'm entering in now, the despair of life, the despair of meaninglessness, the despair of, of frustration of not being able to do anything about this. Is there any hope? Does the gospel speak to this? You bet it does. I'm speaking to some people now in very difficult situations, intractable problems. Do, does the gospel speak to it? Does this gospel speak to my despair? It does. Hold on. Because Paul tells us that it does. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8 to 9, Paul tells us this. He said, look, do you know the kinds of things that I'm going through? I am hard-pressed. I am perplexed. I have been persecuted. I have been struck down, he says. And Paul says, it's not an issue of a day. It's not the issue of, of a week. It's not the issue of a month. It's not the issue of even this year. Paul says, this has been my entire life. Hard-pressed. Struck down, perplexed. I'm persecuted. Paul, but Paul then says this. You know, even though I'm hard-pressed, I'm not crushed. Even though I am perplexed, I'm not given to despair. Even though I'm persecuted, I am not abandoned. Even though I'm struck down, I am not destroyed. How did Paul see this? How did Paul achieve this? The gospel. It's the gospel. Why? It was in, after, later, in the, uh, so it's 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 8, we just quoted. In verse 16 to 18, he tells us how. In fact, Paul summarizes all of this thing in this way. Because some of you are just saying, I'm losing heart. Paul says, we do not lose heart. How is it possible with all that he went through? If you want to read a list of what he went through, just go and read 2 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 11, 12, 13. How did he say that I am not given to despair? I am not crushed. I am not abandoned. I am not destroyed. How can that be your own confession? The gospel, Paul tells us, that based on what he is looking forward to in the gospel, it enables him to reinterpret his condition. You see, when we look at pain, we can either look at pain as the world and all the conditions of the world are pressing, is pressing us. If you look at pain that way, without any hope anywhere, you will be crushed. You will be crushed. When you look at the perplexity of all that is going on, without any hope, you will enter into despair. When you feel you are being attacked everywhere, you feel everyone has abandoned you. And when you look at all the ways you are being struck down here and there, ultimately, you feel without any hope that you will be destroyed. Paul says, but I don't lose heart. How? He looked at the hope of the gospel. He says, look, I know what the gospel has helped me achieve in, in eternity. Later in chapter 5, verse 1 to uh, uh, 7, he speaks about this. That I will have a resurrected existence in a new heavens and a new earth with God forever when all these intractable conditions and my own personal 
conditions will be brought to an end. Because of the gospel hope, we can look at our problems today and say God is using it and working it out for my good, even though it doesn't feel like that. Because of our gospel hope, just like Paul, despite all of these inhibitions, he continued to preach the gospel and he went around on his mission. Why? Because he said that though my outward man is perishing and is wasting away, my inner man is being renewed day by day. That my current conditions, my suffering cannot be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Without a gospel hope in the afterlife, you will be given to despair. But don't be given to despair because the gospel is true. Because of the gospel hope. Listen, the issue of racism will never be solved. I'm speaking to people who know African-American people, even to my African-American friends. Ultimately, you will not find the hope in the reforms that that you want through the government. At the end of the day, if we believe in Christ, you will always be affirmed for, for, for who you are. On the issues of sexism in Nigeria, I don't know whether that will ever be solved. But I do know that there is a time when it will be utterly solved because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Paul said, for our light and momentary troubles, if you feel now that your troubles seem, they seem for so long, as Majek Fasheku just passed on, used to sing, he said, so long, too long. But Paul says that it is momentary. He is not making light of it. Remember, Paul talked about his conditions. He is not making light of it. He's saying when you compare your, your, your condition to what you will receive in eternity, it is momentary. Compare 80 years of oppression to eternity, it is momentary. When you compare the pain, the afflictions that you get, he said it is light. When you compare it to the glory that shall be revealed in us, he said it outweighs it all. So now, fix your eyes, not on what is seen, the problems. Fix your eyes on what God has accomplished in Christ, in the hope of the gospel. And that doesn't lead you to inaction. Oh, no, my friend. For remember, Paul continued. It, cont- it enables us to continue the fight. Are you exhausted now? Go and rest in the gospel. And when you have regained your strength and your energy in the gospel, go again. And fight against sexism. Go again and fight against racism. Go again and fight against a sexually immoral, decadent youth culture. Go again and keep on the fight. Because we know at the end of the day, we win. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is why the gospel is important. This is why we we. We hinge ourselves in the gospel. I, there's a note of caution I want to say to all of us, many people listening to me. You can see that some of us are excited because you can see how it's been applied to just social justice, how it's been applied to, to art and entertainment. And these are implications of the gospel that some people want to get so much excited about the implications and you forget the gospel. Please don't do that. Why we spend four of the teachings on trying to show what the gospel is, is that you want to hinge your ethics on the gospel, not just on general Christianity. So as I'm saying all of these things, yes, fight for social justice, but where you see poor people, also show them the eternal, preach to them about the eternal hope that they have. Where you see people in entertainment who are appreciating your art, yes, tell them the hope of what, the reason for the hope that you have. 
Jesus Christ said, look, even if people, in Luke 13, 1 to 5, even if people are saved from death in this world, if they don't repent, they will likewise perish. So don't forget the gospel. Don't forget truly what it is. And so as we go, as we try to grow, as we try to evangelize, as we go in churches, as we do that also, let us though, be shaped in our ethics by what the gospel teaches us. And may God help us as we do that. Let us pray.